Anyway, for uh, over the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been examining how to stand firm uh, when tempted. And uh, what a great Christmas message, huh? And uh, one of the things that we've, we've discovered over the past couple of weeks is that basically in simple terms what this means is how do you continue to do what's right before God when continually given opportunities to do that which is wrong? And uh, that's what we're looking at, how to stand firm when tempted. And uh, in our first session, we learned to recognize the difference or differentiate uh, between a trial and a temptation. And we learned that a trial was a testing of our faith for the purpose of producing endurance in our life, for the purpose of bringing us to an end result that is honoring to God. And that is that we would grow spiritually, that we would become more conformed to the image of Christ. And so the end result of a trial always is that we will become closer to God as we go through that experience. Well, on the other hand, a temptation always leads us away from God. We become alienated because what temptation does is lead us into sin if we choose to go that direction. We're offered choices all through life. Am I going to do what's right before God or am I going to do what's wrong according to what God says is right or wrong? So a temptation always leads us, if we choose to go that direction, it always leads us further from God. It doesn't draw us near to God. It alienates us from God. And the Bible says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And basically, there's a distancing that takes place. That's why we see in Psalm 51, the story of David as he, as he succumbed to temptation, as he fell to temptation. He said in Psalm 51, restore the joy of thy salvation. Restore that relationship that we once knew when we were walking close together. I know you're still there. You haven't abandoned me, but I just don't feel like we're hitting it off like we used to. And temptation always leads us that way. So that's what we saw the, the first session. The second session, we saw that um, not only did, did we recognize the difference, but we also saw some ways to resist in a practical way temptation. And uh, some of the ways that we did it is we don't tolerate it. Don't put yourself in a position to, to play with fire. You'll get burned. Don't mess around with things that God says are not right. And there are many of us who have a habit in our lives of doing that, and it ultimately leads to destruction. We're to use the right resistance. Also, we're to uh, remember that the final pain was always greater than the temporary pleasure. You know, the one thing that seems to be so true of temptation is that it always looks so good on the surface. You know, it can't be that bad. Go ahead and do it. What can the harm be? You know, I mean, a lot of people are doing it. And what ends up happening is that the final consequence always outdistance the temporary pleasure. Always. That's a guarantee given. And the last thing we saw is we need to memorize the Word of God. So those two sessions, we saw to recognize the difference between trials and temptation. We saw how to resist it. And now what I want to do is just take a look at a real-life example of an individual that God has felt will help you and I learn to deal with temptation. A real-life example of a person who did not resist temptation. And as a result, his life is probably one of the most tragic examples in, in the biblical record of a person who fell to temptation. And that is in Judges chapter 13, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. But in Judges 13, we see in chapters 13 through 16, you know what's interesting to me is that here's four chapters in the Bible that have to do with this particular individual. And I think without any question that many people know who he is. Whether you're a Christian, a non-Christian, whether you have any idea of a biblical record or not. In fact, there's even a Fruit of the Loom commercial now. I don't know if you've seen it, that features Samson and Delilah. You know, here's a guy named Samson. He gets four chapters in the Bible and people know who he is. 
In his life is a tragic example of the consequences of a man who chose to do that which was wrong before God. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 13. We're going to pick it up at the very beginning and go through it and see if we can identify where this man went wrong as, a, as an example to us so that we don't have to do the same types of things and fall into the same and, and end up in the same result. Judges chapter 13. It says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God appeared to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom thou hast sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God again came to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman came quickly and ran to her husband and said, Behold, the, woman who came the, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall the boy's mode of life and his vocation be. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel, What is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the kid with the green offering and offered it on the rock of the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw it, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah or his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson, and the child grew up. And the Lord blessed him. The beginning of the life of Samson. Very special day. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions as we go through this. But uh, what, what do you learn other than the fact that here's a man and his, and his wife. 
And his wife had been barren. She had no children and no greater stigma at the time in that particular culture was a woman who had no children. And so they had hoped and they had prayed and they, they were longing for the day when they would have a child. And now there's an angel of the Lord who comes to this couple and says that you shall have a child. And it's pretty interesting, too, because it puts Samson in some rather unique company as far as the Bible is concerned. Because only John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth were, were, were born, and prior to their birth was there an, an annunciation, so to speak, from heaven that this would take place. So as we go through, let me ask you some questions, see if you're paying attention. What was Samson's life objective to be? What was the purpose for his life? Okay, to save the Israelites. Look, it says in verse 5. It says, And behold, you shall conceive a son, and no razor shall come upon him. He shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from who? From the hands of the Philistines. The enemies of God's people, the Philistines, and God had used them. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 13, it says the Israel had again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So God gave them into the hands of the Philistines, and God used the Philistines to oppress his people, to teach them a lesson and discipline them. So now he says, hey, you're going to have a son, and this son will begin to deliver our people from this oppression. It's important to keep that in mind as we look at what his life's objective was to be. The purpose of this man's life was to deliver Israel from the enemies of God. All right? What else do you know about him? Okay, he was to be a Nazarite, which means basically... Okay, yeah, it was an outward expression to signify that this man inwardly was to be set aside for the work of God. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. And that basically meant there were some requirements. Numbers chapter 6, 1 through 6, if you want to read it, indicate that he had to have, uh, he was not to ever shave his head. He was never to shave and razor was never to touch his, his body. He was, so uh, he was not to do that. He was not to get near anything that was dead or unclean. He was to stay away from that. He wasn't to drink any strong drink. And that's why you see over and over again, the, the, the angel Lord kept saying to the woman, hey, no strong drink. You're not to drink anything of the vine. You're not to do anything. You're not to, uh, in fact, that it says uh, not only are you not to drink anything, but you're not to eat any unclean food. And he said it three different times to make sure that they understood very clearly what his purpose and his mission was to be. So we learn that. What do we learn about his parents? What kind of parents did he have? What's that? They were God-fearing people. If you look at verse 8, it's pretty interesting. It says, Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O oh Lord, please let the man of God again, whom thou hast sent, come to us, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. All right? So what do you, what do you know about these people? What's the first thing you find out about this, this, this man? Hey, yeah, this wasn't... You know what he said? He didn't say, hey, can you have that guy come back again? Because my wife's telling me that, you know, we're supposed to have a son, and, and I'm not real sure, and I want to get the message straight. He didn't question any of that. He said, I want, this, I want the angel of the Lord to come back again to teach me what to do so I don't mess it up. He wasn't saying to come back and just tell me again the same thing that he told my wife. Because if she said it, I believe that that's what happened. But I want to make sure I don't mess this up. A couple things. Number one is, if, you've ever, if you were, were raised in a home with godly parents or a godly parent... I can think of no greater Christmas gift than to go back to them and thank them for what they've done in your life. 
for the role model, for the example, for, for, the, for the discipline that it took, uh, for standing firm in difficult times as, as you have grown up in your own life, to go back to them and thank them for what they did. I can think of nothing better than one day to have my kids come to me and tell me, you know what, even though we, never, we, we, we often disagreed on a lot of things and I never understood you, uh, I just want to thank you for standing firm in your walk with the Lord. Man, wouldn't that be the greatest gift in the world to get? But there's a second thing, too, that I need to point out. And that is that just because you may be godly people doesn't guarantee your children will turn up to be godly people. And we need to get this across. Because you know what the sad thing to me is? There are many of us... See, God gives all of us a free will to make decisions, to choose which direction we want to go. We have responsibility as parents, and and we should all realize that. We have a responsibility to live right before God. We have a responsibility to teach them the things of God, to train them in the way that they should go, to do everything within our power to introduce them to the love of God and and introduce them to Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. And and to do those things, we need to do that. We need to pray for them. We need to love them. We need to discipline them. We need to nourish them. We need to do all those things. That's our responsibility. You can't shirk that. There's no way you can get around it. But I also want you to realize this, that you can do all those things and God still allows your kids and my kids the freedom of choice. And they, like us, can choose to do what's right before God or they can choose to do what's wrong before God. And as a Christmas present to you, I want this to become very clear in your mind. Stop torturing yourself and blaming yourself for the choices that your children make. They are responsible before God as you are responsible before God for what their choices are. And all we can do at that point is to continue to love them, continue to pray for them, and just turn them over to the Lord to do what's right. Don't torture yourself anymore. Give yourself a Christmas gift. Give, it, give yourself the gift of knowing God, they get their own free will and they choose to do what they want to do. And you know why I bring that up? Because you're going to find out that as godly as these parents are, and the role model that they were, and the right things that they did, Samson chose not to stand firm when he was tempted. He chose to go his own direction. And so I can't think of anything greater for you or for me to realize that, you know what, I can only do what I can do before God, and the rest is up to to my kids. They're going to have to make some tough choices, just as we all do every day. And uh, thank God that uh, there are some promises we can be comforted that uh, God will do whatever it takes to get his children back in line. And uh, we can trust him. And, and we know that what he'll do is right. So there's some comfort there. But now the question as we go through it is, why did this guy with such a great beginning? Think about this man. What a great beginning to have. Oh, there's, a, there's one other thing that I, that, that I thought was kind of funny. Notice this about Manoah. Verse 12. Is this a dad or what? Look what he says. Hey, okay, all right, we're going to have a son. Okay, I don't even question that. That's the, I, I don't question that. I need to know what to do. But can you just give me a little glimpse? What's this guy going to do for a living? Now, is that a dad or what? I love that. It's like, you know, we read Bass and stuff. This is fun. That's funny stuff. I think that's great. It's not, you know, anything else. But, oh, wait a minute. What's this guy going to do for a living? Wouldn't that be great? I'm thinking about a practical standpoint. Do you ever get frustrated when your kids don't know what they want to do? Like, you know, when are you going to be when you grow up? I don't know. I don't even know what I want to be, right? But you've got to pretend like you've got a handle on these things. 
But it's like, you know, it's like, you know, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? And, you know, they just kind of flounder along trying to figure out what to do. Wouldn't it be great if God would say, okay, you're going to have a boy, and here's what he's going to do. All right? He's going to be a professional baseball player. <laughs> Thank you, God. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, my God. Wouldn't that be great? All right, man. Then you get the glove out, the ball, the bat, and you're down there all the time, and you know that's what he's going to do. So you do everything you can to get him going in the right direction. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be great. Or if you knew, okay, what's my daughter going to be? Well, you're going to pay $72,000 for her to go to school so she can meet this guy and they get married and then she'll stay home and, and have kids and, and, and all that fucking stuff. You know, wouldn't that be great if you knew that ahead of time? It's like, no, 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 home ec. We're thinking home ec here. We're, we're thinking, you know, sewing, cleaning, cooking, child rearing. And uh, you know what? It'll be, it, it, that's what God said you're going to be. Wouldn't that be, that'd be so, man, that'd be sweet. I don't know. But, but this is a typical dad. Okay, what's this guy going to do? Well, anyway, so we're going to take a look. And he did tell him, and he just basically said this. Well, you know what he's going to do? He's going to begin to deliver his people from the oppression of the Philistines. But you're going to notice that there's five flaws in this man's life. This is kind of a good news, bad news story. Uh, all the bad news is on Samson's end, and the good news will be on our end, and, you know, much to the chagrin of Samson. However, but there's five flaws that will lead to a fall, and I'll guarantee you, in every case, this will happen if you have the same flaws in your life. If you've got the same character flaws that Samson had, you will end up with the same result. Guaranteed. Flaw number one. Samson focused on the wrong objective. Samson focused on the wrong objective. And we see in Judges chapter 14, the story continues, and we see that it says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen this babe, I mean, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, well, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all of our people? I mean, you can't find one decent gal, I mean, out of all of our people. And they said, must you go to an uncircumcised, Philistine, slobby, piggy kind of people to get a wife? That's, uh, I get a new living, a living translation. Uh, but Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. In verse 7 it says, then he went down and talked with the woman and he liked her. Flaw number one. Focusing on the wrong objective. Samson, the he-man with the she-weakness. Check it out. I mean, what do you see about this woman that got him so excited? What got this guy so excited about this gal? All right, let's go through it. And this, this is pretty interesting. It says he saw there a young Philistine woman. That's all it took. Think about it, right? Saw her, and he came back and said, I have seen. Meaning what? What attracted him to this woman? Holy smokes. Man, this is really scary. What? Thank you very much. Her physical appearance. All that it took was this gal looked good. That's it. That's all it takes for you know, most guys. It's like, that's it. She looked good. Well, what do you know about her? She has a great body. <laughs> Where'd she go to school? School. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> true. Hey, this is, this is true. I, I, I know guys who, who 
who take gals. I know guys that are professional athletes who, who will pick a gal because she looks good. They'll go to a party together and I'll tell her, don't say anything to anybody. <laughs> Just stand over there and look good. And, yet, and we've, all, we've seen that before, right? And it, knock out, look again. You ask her a question. So where are you from? I'm from Joycey. Bang, ba-ding, ba-ding, ba-ding. You know, it's like, please, don't tell anybody anything. Just stand over there and don't say anything. He focused on the wrong objective. All that he was into was the physical. Everything was appearance. It didn't matter. What did this guy have? You know, what he's saying is, what, is dad, what does his dad say? Hey, hey, young stud, listen up here. What in the world would you want a Philistine girl for when you got all these people you can choose from? Can I just be blunt here for a second? You might want to give this. You might as if I know that's a pretty scary thought, huh? It is a frightening thought. Well, not as blunt, but 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 I give this tape to whomever. I mean, you got kids, give this tape to them. This is probably the, the strongest biblical argument that I will find why God isn't excited about Christians romantically dating non-Christians. Because the question that he has is this. What in the world, son, do you have in common with that people? Those people hate our God. They despise his name. They have put us in oppression. God has used them to discipline us. Why in the world would you even want to date someone whom you have nothing in common with spiritually? Physically? Hey, physically, that's it. That was all he had in common with her. I like what I saw. That's enough. You talk about focusing on the wrong objective. Man, I'll tell you what, it is a sad thing. I, you know, I deal with guys all the time who get hung up with gals because they look good and they have nothing else in common and they fall into sexual sin and their life gets screwed up because of it and they can't figure out what the problem was. The problem was, what did you have in common with her? And I've got to believe that's another strong argument why God is against premarital sex. Because you end up with a lot of people who get in a physical relationship, they end up getting married, they wake up one day, and the newness of all that physical relationship wears off, and they're looking at each other saying, what in the world do we have in common? We can't, we don't have anything in common, we can't have a conversation, you know, and then especially when you marry a non-Christian, it's like nothing that you thought was important is important anymore, and then you're battling all that, then you have kids, then you're arguing about are you going to church or not going to church, you're arguing with in-laws and people who hate God and the things of God, and you're just stuck out there saying, oh, how did all this happen to me? Well, how did it happen to you? Because you were doing your thing in three years ever again, and it doesn't work too good. Here's what Dobson said, hey, I'll tell you what, guys, this is for guys. You think through your zipper, and you're in deep doo-doo. That's, that's a true statement. That's exactly what's going to happen here. You th- I mean, I don't care how you want to put it, but that's exactly what's going to happen. And I've seen some of the biggest guys, Samson-type people, get just wheeled around by a little skinny, good-looking hard body. And I don't, know what the, I don't know what turned him on. I don't know if he was a leg guy, a breast guy, a lip guy, an ear guy. You know, we, we, guys all talk. I don't know, gals, you probably don't realize this, but guys actually talk that way. Well, I'm like a leg man, man. You know, I like that nice, solid calf, man. You know, and that's what happens, right? 
And so, I mean, it's like, I don't know. It doesn't say. You know, he looked at her lips and went, oh, man, I love big lips. You know, I, I don't know what it was. But he saw something that he liked, right? And that's what attracted him to him. That's why they got together. And it's amazing. We read through stuff like this and we don't put it into, hey, this is reality. That's what happened. And so as you go through it, here's what Jim, here's what Jim Dobson said. Here we go. Check this out. First, men are primarily excited by visual stimulation. Nuh-uh. They're turned on by feminine nudity or peekaboo glimpses of semi-nudity. I was at the main place knocking off the Christmas shopping yesterday. This isn't him. This is me speaking. I'm just reading through him. <laughs> this is really up to date here. Faxed it to me this morning. Man. And I walked by Victoria's Secret. How many guys have seen Victoria's Secret? There's nothing secret about it. She's exposing it all over the place. Anyway... Victoria's Secret. You got a bunch of guys in there who go to buy these little things because they know their wife's going to look good in them and by, now it's just a matter of, well, how in the world am I going to talk her into putting it on? <laughs> now, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've been there, you bought those things and you don't even know where they are, right? But it was a good idea at the time. Anyway, women, by contrast, are much less visually oriented than men. Sure, they're interested in attractive masculine bodies, but the, physical, the, the physiological mechanism of sex is not triggered typically by what they see. Women are stimulated primarily by the sense of touch. Thus, we encounter the first source of disagreement in the bedroom. He wants her to appear unclothed in a lighted room, and she wants to caress, him in, caress her in the dark. Second and much more important, men are not very discriminating in regard to the person living within an exciting body. Samson should have understood this. A man can walk down the street and be stimulated by a scantily clad female who shimmies past him even though he knows nothing about her personality or values or mental capabilities. He's attracted by her body itself. Likewise, he can become almost as excited over a photograph of an unknown nude, nude model as he can in a face-to-face -face encounter with someone he loves. In essence, the sheer biological power of sexual desire in males is largely focused on the physical body of an attractive female. Hence, there is some validity to the complaint by women that they have been used as sex objects by men. This explains why female prostitutes outnumber males by a wide margin and why few women try to, quote, rape men. It explains why a room full of toothless old men can get a large charge from watching a burlesque dancer take it all off. It reflects the fact that masculine self-esteem is more motivated by a desire to, quote, conquer a woman than in becoming the object of a romantic love. These are not very flattering characteristics of, the male, of male sexuality, but they are very well documented in all professional literature. All these factors stem from a basic difference in sexual appetites of males and females. Ladies, you need to understand this as a fact of life. And it should, somewhere along the line, be incorporated into your decision-making as to what type of clothes you wear and why you wear them. I try to get my daughter to understand this, and she acts like I'm an absolute idiot sometimes. Well, because I act like I'm an absolute idiot all the other times. But anyway, <laughs> but what we need to understand is that this is a truth. You've you got to be more discreet about what you wear because men are too stupid. And, they, and, and they're attracted by that. Now, maybe not stupid is not the word. Vulnerable is probably a better word. But stupid fits too. <laughs> but the reality of it is, you've got to be careful about what you wear. And you better teach your girls to be careful about what they wear. Because this is a fact of life. 
That's why guys, that's why men in business run into so much trouble because they hire a gal who looks great in a tight dress and she can't type. We need a typist, but I can't type. That doesn't matter. <laughs> Sit here. You know, and then you wonder why, well, gee, how did all that happen? You know what I mean? Now, I understand there are some women who say this. Well, if he's got a problem lusting over me because I've got this low-cut dress on and it's tight when it goes all the way up the bottom of my butt. If, he gets, if that's, that's his problem, well, no, it's not. See, because if it causes a brother to stumble, then it's your problem. So you need to understand that just as well. Now, it doesn't give us as men a, a right to say, well, it was her fault because look how she was dressed because I still have the freedom to make a decision before God. I'm guilty. But you know what? So are you. If you contribute to it, you're just as guilty before God. And you need to understand that. See, there's two sides of it. And so what happens is, that's why, you know, what did David see about Bathsheba? She was, and I want, did he name it after she was taking a bath? Do you think that was kind of like Bathsheba? Just a stupid question. I don't know when she got the name. But, but, but you stop and think about it. You know, what did, what did he know about Bathsheba? Nothing, man. She looked great with the water running down her face. That's all he knew. He said, I saw her, I liked her, I sent for her, I took her and I had her and I had sex with her. And that's all that it took. That's all that it takes for guys. That's why women have such a hard time when they find out their husband's having an affair. Because obviously you must love her and you must be close to her. Why would you have sex with her? <laughs> because she looked good. And women take it personally and guys are like, I don't know. And it's wrong to do that, and it's, but it's just a matter of understanding the differences between men and women. Samson focused on the wrong objective. When you focus on the physical, you are always gonna, you're always going to fall. You're always going to fall. Second thing, he also, handled his leisure, he also handled his leisure time carelessly. Look at this, this is great. He goes down, Judges 14, 10 through 14. His father goes down, and he sees the woman, and Samson made a feast there as customary for the bridegroom. Now, when he appeared, he was given 30 companions, as was customary for that situation. When he appeared, he was given 30 companions, and he said, Samson said, let me tell you a riddle. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen gar garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said, and that's what he said. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give him the answer. Let me ask you a stupid question. What is Samson's purpose in life? Huh? To begin to deliver Israel from these people. That's his objective in life. That was his God-given objective. What is he doing? He's playing games. He's telling them riddles. You know, he's playing categories with them. Ah, it's like, what is this guy doing? You talk about a guy who got sidetracked from his objective. His objective was to begin to deliver his people from these people, and he's playing games at a wedding with them. It's like, man, sidetracked? This is insane. Now, let me ask you a question. What is your objective? What is your life purpose? You ever wrestle with that? I mean, why am I still here? Why am I still on earth? Why am I, you know, what am I supposed to be doing here? What's my objective? Well, a couple of them. To love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. To love my neighbor as myself. To walk in obedience with God. To introduce people to God's love in the person of Jesus Christ. That's my objective. That's why I'm still here. That's, why, that's what it's all about. So I don't care whether what I do for a living, my objective is those things. That's my life's purpose. 
You know what happens with our leisure time? It takes us away from our life's purpose. We got a whole society of people who are looking for leisure time from their leisure time. You ever get back from a vacation and say, man, I need a vacation? From what? From my vacation. Well, what were you doing on your vacation? Were you meeting your life's purpose or objectives? Or what were you doing? See, we're just, we're just as sidetracked as Samson was. Our objectives or life purpose become what? Doing things that are pleasing to us. My objective or life purpose is to work 40 years so I can retire and then I can drive around a motorhome for five years, you know, and fish and hunt and, and, and uh, play golf every day or whatever it is. That's our life purpose in our society. It is? And you're not sidetracked and you don't see the problem there? We can hammer on Samson for telling riddles at a wedding, but we just look and we say, well, here's my life's purpose. Here's my objective. I want to make so much money by a certain time so I can retire by a certain age so I can go and play and do the things that I want to do all the rest of my life. Well, how stupid can we be? Our life objective is to meet the objectives that are given to us by God, not the objectives that we come up with on our own. So the question is, are you meeting your life objectives? Are you introducing people to Jesus Christ? Are you walking in obedience every day with God? Are you obeying His commandments? If you love Him, He says you obey His commandments. Are you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Oh, really? Well, how are you demonstrating those things? Don't just tell me on paper. Don't tell me in words. But show me how that's happening in your life. See, he got sidetracked. He didn't, take, he, he didn't understand how to deal with his leisure time. And a lot of us don't either. And we're, we're in trouble because of it. And uh, I guess the question so far is, you know, what relationships are you cultivating in your life and why? And the second thing is, what do you do with your leisure time? What do you do with your leisure time? What way does it honor God? Not only your leisure time, but what are you doing with the rest of your time? So as you go through it, his third flaw was that he gave in to the persistent whining of his wife. Man, you want to talk about a flaw. Judges 14, 16 through 17 says, Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing. She said, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people, and notice that, she still identifies with them quite well. You've given my people. Do you ever have in-laws that say stuff like that? My people, your people, in-laws, outlaws, that kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's basically it. So you give my people riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my... He says, well, I haven't even explained it to my mother or father. They're close people to me. I'm not explaining it to you, bimbo. He's finally figured out she's a bimbo, you know, by this time. I haven't explained it. And he said, so why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her. Why? Because she just bugged him. She bugged him so much. Now think about this for a moment. You get a guy who lives for the physical, guess what happens? She cut him off for a week. Oh, that's too, too little too graphic here, but that's the way it is. No huggy, no kissy, no you-know-what. None of it. She used it. She knew how to use it because the guy lived for the physical and she knew how to use it. So guess what happened? He didn't stand firm under temptation. He gave in. You know, I stopped thinking about this. You know what? Your convictions are only as deep as the time it takes for you to set them aside. Whether it's a day, whether it's two days, five days, seven days, whether it's a, a six months or a year, your convictions are only as deep as the time that it takes for you just to throw them aside. The man had no depth to his convictions. None at all. We already see that in his life. So here's the problem. I've seen husbands and wives, I've seen, I've seen families, I've seen husbands and wives, one or the other, give in to what's right before God because the other person pouted about it. 
I've taught a finance series where I've seen people get in debt because one or the other person pouted about something that they had to have. They had to buy it. One of them was convicted about it, knew that what they were doing wasn't right. We're not going to go into debt for this. We don't need it. It's, that's not the problem. We don't need it. And wine, 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 wine. Finally, here, have it shut up. And they lay aside their convictions. You think it's funny? That's devastating. If you've ever had to deal with people that are in that situation, it's devastating. Always giving in because you don't want to listen to the stinking whining. I've seen parents give in to their children. They know their convictions. They know what God says is right or wrong. They know that they shouldn't give in. But the kids keep whining and moaning in ways you know that you know how to manipulate one another. And before too long, a parent will step aside and give in to the convictions. God help us to stand firm. Just because somebody's whining in our face, it doesn't change what's right or wrong. I've seen parents give in where all of a sudden it's like somebody's dating a non-Christian and they're thinking about getting married and parents are saying, hey, no, wait, they're, they're, what fellowship does light have us darkness? That's not a good thing to do. Don't do it, don't do it. Oh, but you should meet him. He's a nice guy. He's this, he's that, blah, 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 blah. They whine, they moan, they cry. They want their kids to be happy. And so what they do, they want them to be happy. So, so they give in and they compromise. And then later when their lives are all screwed up in a mess and they're coming home and she's coming home with the three kids and you know what? And it just becomes a matter of, well, you contributed to it so now you can contribute somehow or another to try to fix it and make it all right. Not me. Whine all you want. I ain't giving in. If it's right before God, it's right before God. And that's just the way it is. Oh, please, Mom, co-sign. Dad, co-sign this loan. Well, Dad won't do it, but if you, will you do it? Oh, please, co-sign for me. Oh, how foolish can we be? But we do it all the time. And yet we don't see it in our lives, but it's real easy to see it in Samson's. The guy was a weenie. He gave in because he whined and moaned for seven days. The fourth thing is, and I mean, what else? Can, what, what do you need to say about this? He developed a close alliance with the wrong crowd. He developed a close alliance with the wrong crowd. Judges 16, 4 and 5. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. She comes onto the scene. And the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure or entice him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Again, the guy was looking, focusing on the wrong objective. Here comes another good-looking woman into his life and he falls for the same pattern and this time it's going to lead him all kind of troubles. But he formed a close alliance with the wrong crowd. He formed an alliance with the people that he was supposed to be, to be delivering his people from. I mean, I mean, we talk to our kids about it, you know. Choose your friends wisely. Don't hang around with so-and-so. He's trouble. She's trouble. I, you know, don't, don't do that. And that we grow, and, and as an adult, we don't, even, we don't even apply the same principles to our own life. Are the relationships in your life drawing you closer to God and the things of God? Or are they taking you away from God and the things of God? I've seen close friends give ungodly counsel to people and I've seen people buy that and believe it. Why? Because there's no, there's no common ground there. I've seen friends say, oh yeah, you ought to dump the bum. The guy's a bum anyway. Oh, good, because that's what she wanted to do anyway. So now all she needs is a good friend tell her to dump the bum. But it has nothing to do with biblical counsel. And, it, and that's okay because this close friend of hers is somebody who isn't close to God and never had a relationship with Christ and yet continues to have access to this person's life feeding them on biblical counsel. Psalm 1 talks about that. The warning about taking in ungodly counsel. What's the close alliance? Who are the people closest to you in your life? Are they people that will hold you accountable to the things of God? 
Are they people who love Jesus Christ with all their heart? Are they people whose main objectives are to love God with all their heart, to love their neighbor as themselves, to walk in obedience daily, and, and, and believe that this actually is the Word of God, that this is the ground rules for all of life? Are those the closest people in your life? If they're not, you better be cultivating some relationships that, that will be. Because you're setting yourself up and you're making yourself vulnerable to things that are not going to be good. 1 Corinthians 15.33, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Whether you're 15 years old or 55 years old, it doesn't matter. Age is, is, is no factor here. Bad company corrupts good morals. Number five, Samson didn't take his vow to God seriously. He was a Nazarite from the womb. There was a vow before God. And he didn't take it serious. Judges 16, 13, and 14, Delilah then said to Samson, Until now you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric, uh, fabric on the loom and tighten with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into a fabric, and tightened it with a pin. And again she called him and said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his fabric and pulled up the pin and the loom and the fabric. And what he was doing was he was playing games with the thing that was most sacred in his life. He was playing games. He was taking the sacred and making it into the commonplace. He was profaning the things of God. He was playing games with God. He didn't take his vow to God serious, but he also didn't take God serious. The man's life was out of control. He was going in the wrong direction. Why did he fall? Well, because he couldn't say no to temptation. But if you look at it, he focused on the wrong objectives. He handled his leisure time carelessly. He was guilty of both of those. He was guilty of giving in to persistent whining. He didn't have very deep convictions. He just folded under the pressure. In a week, man, I mean, a week he folded. He was guilty of developing a close alliance with the wrong crowd. He was hanging out with the wrong people. And he was also guilty that he didn't take his vow to God serious. And that's all the bad news. Now, real quick, we're going to go through it. Just take all those bad character traits that he had, those, those flaws, and turn them into something positive. This is really the good news. Focus on the right objectives. What are the right objectives? The things of God. See, you know what God says? The physical world, everything in here, this, this, this that you look at, all this stuff, is temporary and it ain't going to be around. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians, the things that you see are temporary, the things that are not seen are eternal. Isn't that, that'll blow you away sometimes, lay around thinking of that. Everything you see is temporary. Why do you get hung up on the, on the physical when the physical is temporary? We need to be focusing on the spiritual. How will this relationship please God? How will what I do please God? How will the job that I have please God? It's none of this stuff. How will the house I live in? How will that please God? How can I use it for the glory of God? The money that I make, how can I use the money God blessed me with, with to please God and do the things that God wants me to do? How can that be a, a factor in me being obedient to the things of God? Focus on the spiritual and not on the physical. The second thing is we must guard our leisure time. Man, I'll tell you what, I deal with guys that are on the road a lot and you want to talk about trouble. There ain't nothing like trouble when you don't have anything else to do. Second Opinions chapter 2 tells us that an idle mind is a devil's workshop. And that's right after that verse, uh, God only helps those who help themselves. But, uh, and everyone's going, second point, that? what did he say? But the point is, it's not biblical, but the point is that, that the principle is there, and that is when you've got too much free time, you've got nothing but trouble on your hands unless you're submitting yourself to do the things that are good before God. You've got free time, you're going to retire, then volunteer doing things that will please God. 
You're going to be on the road. You're going to do something. I try to talk to guys. I say, hey, look, man, you're on the road. we get all this time together. Let's get together. Let's have a time of prayer. Let's share together. Let's read the Bible together. Let's study together. Let's do something that will be beneficial. Let's meet some relatives or friends and have a time to share and talk with them. But don't just sit around the lounge, man, on the road. Because ain't nothing good going to happen there. And I don't care whether, you know, like my brother, I don't care whether you're a pilot. You know, and you got downtime and you're just hanging around a hotel or whatever. Hey, you know, like he does. He goes, he goes, man, I just go to the gym. I work out. I go for a run. You know, those are things. That, hey, because you don't want to hang out in the lounge of the hotel when you're on the road feeling sorry for yourself. Especially if you're a guy who all it takes is somebody to look good to come before you. And that's all that it takes for, you know, all of a sudden the green light to start going blink, 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 blink. You know, warning, danger. Guard your leisure time carefully. Number three, stand firm on your convictions. It sounds simple, but hey, if it's right, it's right. And if it's right today, it's right tomorrow. It's right five years from now. It's right a hundred years from now. God's timeless principles have been right all throughout all of time and eternity. The world is going to fade away, but the Word of God stands forever. The principles in here last forever. If it's right with your kids today, it's right with them tomorrow. Don't compromise. If it's right for you today, then it's right for you tomorrow, even though your circumstances may change, the Word of God doesn't. So we need to also stand firm on our convictions. We must also, you know, screen your close companions. Who are you hanging out with? I'll tell you what, you are who you hang out with. It's as simple as that. You may not think so, but you are who you hang out with. My, my folks just tell me all the time, and I never believed it. I look back on it, and that's so true. I became that group mentality. I became what the group was. Bad company corrupts good morals. And not to say I had good morals, but, you know, I know that I was probably contributing to somebody else is, is, is moral fall. You need to guard and screen your close companions. And number five, and we must uphold our vow to God. Does Jesus Christ come first in your life? Does he really? Then you've got to uphold that vow. Christmas story. Two women. They go shopping in Mexico buying some early Christmas gifts. And when they were in Mexico, they decided at the end of the day they had a bunch of stuff and they were coming across the border patrol. And while they were waiting in line, they heard this kind of a, a, a moaning kind of noise. The one gal looked down in the ditch and there was a little chihuahua laying there, freezing, shivering in the water. The gal picked it up and wrapped it in her coat and she wanted to take care of it, but she didn't want the border patrol to see it because she was afraid they'd take it and just throw it back in the ditch. So she hid it among all of her stuff and she put it in the trunk and hid it back inside there and they got through the border patrol. As soon as they got past her, she got it, she took it, she covered it up with a towel, she covered it up with her sweater and she put it inside of her coat to keep it from freezing all the way home. And they lived in Orange County. They came all the way home. They had this thing. She took it. She, she nursed it all night long. She tried to feed it. She, she had this thing wound up in, in a, you know, all this cloth and towels. She slept with this animal, put it in her bed, had it right next to her. And, uh, and the thing was still sick in the morning. So you know what she did? She took this thing and they went to a veterinarian. So they took it to the veterinarian and uh, he looked at this and said, where did you get this animal? And she said, well, um, and she didn't want to get in trouble because she had to say I snuck it across my mind. She said, well, I, I, um, a friend of mine had it, and I was watching it for the weekend, and it got sick, and I just needed you to take a look at it. He said, no, wait a minute. Where did you get this animal? She said, well, a friend of mine, no, no. Where did you get the animal? And he wouldn't let her leave until she answered the question. And she finally told the guy the truth. She said, we're on a shopping trip. I saw it laying there. I saw a chihuahua. I picked it up. He said, wait a minute, lady. So this isn't a chihuahua. This is a rabid 
Mexican river rat. That you slept with last night. What's the point? Point very simple. Is that looks can be deceiving. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, let's thank you for this opportunity to be together just to study your word and the practical as it is. We just thank you that uh, you felt it necessary to use the life of Samson, that we can learn from his flaws and that we need not duplicate the same in our life. Thank you that uh, you, don't, you do not lead us into temptation, but that you are actually the way of escape. And we just thank you for that. Father, bless your word as we apply it. May we trust it with all of our heart. May our objective always be to love our Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. In Jesus' name, amen.